Welcome to Voicing Across Distance. This is Episode 3, Invocation, Practice of Attention, and Semi-Occlusion. My name is Masi Asari. There are three parts to this podcast, a reading from a theoretical text on voice, a conversation with a scholar on voices in our time of COVID-19, and a practical vocal exercise from an expert. I'll start today with a brief reading from a text by Adriana Cavarero. Then I'll be in conversation with musicologist, singer, and voice studies scholar Nina Eitzheim, and my guest practitioner for this episode, musical theater professor Jeremy Mossman, will close us out with a brief vocal exercise. Theory. 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 Voice theory. It's a rainy morning here in Chicago, gray and wet, but the trees are beginning to have leaves and flowers, and there is a sweep of green grass in the park below my window. As a number of people I know who have themselves battled or whose loved ones have battled or are currently fighting COVID-19, as this number increases, I am deeply aware that being able to take a clear breath, a clear full breath that moves easily from my lungs and into voice is not something to be taken for granted. Today I want to read an excerpt from a book by the Italian feminist philosopher Adriana Cavarero entitled For More Than One Voice Toward a Philosophy of Vocal Expression. Cavarero writes about how the sound of a word is not the same as the meaning of a word, and the tendency of European philosophers to collapse the two across the long history of that tradition of metaphysical thought has resulted in a certain feminization of vocal sound that contributes to its erasure. She analyzes and pushes back on how the sound of ideas, of thinking, the sound of words, gets imagined as a kind of siren song of their excess. The vocal sound as a dangerous distraction and dead weight from the logical, the rational thought itself. Cavarero has contributed much to the rising field of voice studies, but her main theory of the uniqueness of voices is not one that I want to visit today, and it has, in fact, been usefully critiqued by scholars such as my guest on this episode, Nina Eidsheim. But the passage of Cavarero's that I want to attend to today focuses on a certain part of her theory, that of the voice's relationality. So here's the passage. In the etymology of the Latin vox, the first meaning of vocare is to call or invoke. Before making itself speech, the voice is an invocation that is addressed to the other and that entrusts itself to an ear that receives it. Its inaugural scene coincides with birth, where the infant, with her first breath, invokes a voice in response, appeals to an ear to receive her cry, convokes another voice. The intrauterine bond, which is already rhythmical, musical, is broken. The first cry thus invokes a new sonorous bond, as vitally important as the breath that sustains it. Existence hangs on a push of the lungs, which is at the same time an invocation of the other, 
The voice is always for the ear, it is always relational, but it is never as relational as it is in the first cry of the infant, an invoking life that unknowingly entrusts itself to a voice that responds. For at the beginning, in the cold and blindness of the first light, in the expulsion from the warmth of the uterine water, at the newborn's emergence, there is nothing but the sonorous bond of voice to voice. This bond establishes the first communication of all communicability and thus constitutes its prerequisite. There is nothing yet to be communicated if not communication itself in its pure vocality. The voice first of all signifies itself, nothing other than the relationality of the vocalic, which is already implicit in the first invoking cry of the infant. delighted to welcome my guest scholar for this episode, Nina Eidsheim. Nina Sun Eidsheim is a professor of musicology at the Herb Alpert School of Music at the University of California, Los Angeles. As a scholar and singer, she investigates the multi-sensory and performative aspects of the production, perception, and reception of vocal timbre and 20th and 21st century music. Her books include Sensing Sound, Singing and Listening as Vibrational Practice, and The Race of Sound, Listening, Timbre, and Vocality in African American Music, both from Duke University Press, where she is also a co-editor of the series Refiguring American Music. She is also co-editor of the Oxford Handbook of Voice Studies and is the principal investigator for the University of California-wide transdisciplinary research project entitled Keys to Voice Studies, Terminology, Methodology, and Questions Across Disciplines. Professor Eitzheim is the recipient of numerous fellowships, including the Woodrow Wilson National Career Enhancement Fellowship, Cornell University Society of the Humanities Fellowship, the UC President's Faculty Research Fellowship in the Humanities, and is an inaugural member and co-chair of the American Musicological Society's Board Committee on Race and Ethnicity. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Mansi. It's really a pleasure. It's really an honor. You are such a leader in our field, and I'm thrilled um, that you can make the time to do this. So when we spoke last, uh, you said, it really stuck with me, you said it feels like everything is happening and nothing is happening in the world right now at the same time, both of those things, and that in doing all the things that are required for work, uh, the Zoom calls, I know you you contribute a lot to your university as a leader in addition to the academic work, but through all of these things, the task is about attention. The way you were describing it, it was as though the attention has a really particular texture right now, how much attention we keep and how much we give. So I wanted to ask, what have you been noticing about the attention or focus that it takes to be present nowadays? Hmm. Uh, well, it takes a lot of attention <laughs> I, and focus, and I feel like um, 
um, that I have much less than I normally do. I feel well, that's one of the kind of joys in, in my life for myself is to feel very focused. Mm-hmm. I'm never happier than when I just feel very focused on something and um, mm-hmm. it's been hard not to be able to focus and that's um, I guess what I was trying to describe by everything is happening and nothing is happening yeah. we know that so many people are suffering and I'm so fortunate myself and um, so that's like everything is happening but right for me at this very moment who knows what happens tomorrow but at this moment I'm well my family mm-hmm, as well mm-hmm. we have work um, so it feels very saturated um, in this very intangible way with very, very strong and concrete numbers. Yeah. Uh, although the numbers are changing all the time yeah. too. Yeah. So yeah, it's, um, it's um, I guess it's like the virus. It's like it taxing on the energy and on the system in a way that seems very hard to grasp mm-hmm. how it is that we are... Um, being affected right now when we are for those of us who are actually safe at home mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but I think you know that I want to um, I've been undulating between being depressed and angry at myself for not being fo- having the same kind of focus that I normally do and for being affected by this despite being in such a good position myself mm-hmm. but um, I've come to uh, at least <laughs> this very moment like in the very end of of april that um who knows what i will feel like yeah. next week but that actually this is uh, actually uh, and i've been feeling this all all throughout these now six weeks of shelter um in place that we need to actually feel what's going on mm-hmm. i i don't want to be on zoom parties i don't want to have cocktails mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I have a glass of red wine, <laughs> but I don't, you know, yeah. I don't want to numb myself from, yeah. from, from this feeling actually, because I think it's a valuable feeling and it's one that is true. Yeah. And it's one that maybe we should have had all this time because what we're seeing now is just mm-hmm. the lack of social cohesion, the lack of taking care of each other, the uh, lack of a social support system. I mean, all these lacks, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. And, uh, and and it's been there all the time. It's just now yeah. we get to see it and we need to feel it. Yeah. I don't think we should look away from it and wish and um, and the little focus and attention we have could maybe be spent on yeah. on actions. That's so it's so meaningful and I'm just kind of pausing to to sit with that. Some of the things that I love about your work are how you you ask us to really consider how we experience voice how we experience sound i was fortunate to get to hear you speak in the fall at a symposium at columbia university on new materialist approaches to sound and at the close of your keynote you spoke of i mean you were speaking about the really courageous efforts you had to go to to remap our field um, in order to do the kind of scholarship that you wanted to do and you said that you had to chew music or, or chew sound and let sound run over your tongue and really experience it in these different ways in order to be able to be present with it. And I don't want to trivialize what it is that you're saying now, but it feels to me like a similar call to, again, not numb and not think that our perception of this will come through just one channel, but that it may, it will be something that we experience in a, in a number of different ways and we have to allow for that. 
Yeah, yeah, I hadn't made that connection, but that's really, um, yeah, that's a powerful connection. Thank you for making that. I have to think about that. Yeah, that's so interesting. So, uh, and I think, you know, you said something else recently that really struck me. You said it feels like, maybe this was a couple of days ago, maybe today feels different, but that it can feel, um, just the day-to-day right now can feel like having a newborn. I, I don't have children, but I know that... Um, it's kind of this situation of so much going on and yet the pace of life is is different. And I, it was just a really striking analogy that you mentioned. Uh, are you still feeling that way? That, that right now is like in that moment? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think I am a, I am a parent. I have a, a nine-year-old, mm-hmm. so he's not uh, tiny, tiny, yeah. but um, he's also at the place where he really understands what's going mm-hmm. on. So that, um, you know, requires another kind of attention Mm -hmm. to him Mm -hmm. um, and to how we um, how we live with the situation Mm -hmm. and what we talk about, etc. But I think, yeah, the whole the newborn thing is like this thing where one feels incredible. One is very, very busy. Like there is you don't have time to go to the bathroom hardly. But at the same time, at the end of the day, it seems like one did nothing. But all of that was, you know, just to keep somebody alive, (laughs) which is kind of what we're doing now in in another way. I mean, again, we're so privileged. I'm so privileged. Um, But it's also kind of just making sure that everybody's more or less okay all the time. And that it requires a different kind of um, labor, I think, emotional and physical uh, today than it did two months ago. Of course. And I'm glad that you acknowledged that. Thank you. I want to talk a little bit about... um, well, we've spoken a bit about how your work to date is so beautiful and so pathbreaking for the field of voice studies, and a lot of it has focused on um, the timbre of the voice. And as you're listening to the world now and turning your attention to voices today, obviously, you know, that work is still in your consciousness in some way, but what is it that you are drawn to with voices now? Yeah, it's uh, it's strange. Like, I... Um... I, I I often kind of hear the work in my head, um, mm-hmm. the scholarly uh, here, or kind of see uh-huh. it, yes, in a kind of abstract or, and I try to get it into more concrete sound or mm-hmm. picture. I really, it becomes something very different if I try to write it down and see it in front of mm-hmm. me, whether it's by hand or by typing. I. I need to really have it in a very kind of solidified form orally, just internally orally, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, before I can write it down. Because somehow if I write it down and start to look at it, I start to fiddle with it and it loses the thing that it mm-hmm. had. So yeah, I don't know exactly what that is, but um, I guess it's trying to I really don't know what it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I think it's, I actually have never, until you mentioned that to me, I have never heard anybody, um, I have never heard anybody speak about their scholarly work in that way in terms of hearing hearing it before, and not composing it on the page, but but mm-hmm. hearing it first, in, even if internally, right, not necessarily speaking it, but just hearing but, it. 
Mm. And now that, you know, we're talking about it here, and it was so lovely to talk with you the other day, because again, I've been just, I, I think I told you that like, I felt like my brain was just a mush. And I, I felt think so many people that feel that way. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. But in that conversation, I felt some kind of, oh, wow, I am a person again, you know, <laughs> it was so good. It felt oh, good. so good. So um, you have the same effect again. No, I think maybe like, now I'm thinking that maybe that whole hearing it in the head is more really like to speak it to somebody Mm. because I think an argument is very often just, it feels very um, to the field or I don't Mm -hmm. know, to to some kind of very abstract entity. Mm -hmm. One writes it, one submits it and then goes through all these, you know, anonymous peer reviews who even knows who read it and responds to you. There's this kind of veil on everything. Then it goes out into the world and maybe two, three years later, there is some kind of response in some way or another, right? In a footnote, somebody else's footnote. But here, I think, I guess this is where that kind of the human connection Mm -hmm. comes. Like I want to really speak Mm -hmm. it to somebody or I really want to hear it from somebody I'm talking. Mm -hmm. I guess directly to somebody mm-hmm. and it's more about that talking yeah. to somebody yeah. the, uh, rather than the argument right. you know? and if I'm going to talk to somebody of course the tone is incredibly important like how do I speak to some mm-hmm. to this person mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, if I say it in this way versus this other way like or what will be perceived yeah. or, or understood if I say it in this way versus the other way mm-hmm. um, I don't have any <laughs> way of ensuring that I will be understood or that I even can express what I want to express but I guess, yeah, it's about this very immediate human connection. Yeah. Oh, that's. I'm glad you explained that because I don't think that I understood that before. I was more focused on this idea of hearing as opposed to um, that it shapes your kind of address, that in thinking about how you speak it or how it will come out into the world in sound, that also relates to how it will land on the, on the or how it will be received by others. Um, and that makes so much sense to me. But I think in the writing down too, we can kind of slide. It's so easy because then the writing starts to pull Mm -hmm. and then we maybe forget or I forget who I'm actually writing Mm -hmm. it to Mm -hmm. because there's just so much back and forth and editing Mm -hmm. and fiddling. So it reminds me a little bit, a composer once mentioned to me, Kirsten Childs, who is um, a black woman composer, one of our few black women composers and writers of musicals. And I met with her a couple of years ago and when we had, we hadn't known each other for very long and, she told me that before she sits down to write music, she breathes. She does breathing exercises. And, that, and it made such a big impression on me because I had a bunch of deadlines, writing de- music writing deadlines, and I was so panicked about them that I would sit down at the piano and just like my, my shoulders would be up to my ears and I would just try and write, you know. And I think um, what she was describing and also what you are describing has to do with uh, being, being present with our work in a different way. Um, and that I, though we don't always get reminded about, right, um, in, in scholarly education where it's, it's, there's this idea that it's just, um, ideas just spontaneously happen or they spontaneously happen on the page. Um, and the idea that we Mm -hmm. have to be present with them in order for that. And we have to think about how we want to articulate them in the form of an address. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I think also. Yeah, it often, like I said, becomes so abstract. And I want, I guess, now that we get to think about a lot of big questions. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, they're always present, of course, but like, there's a very particular moment mm-hmm. now. It seems like 
we should really be talking to each other, mm -hmm. you know, not make arguments to the abstract yeah, field. To the void. Um, mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned to me that you have been maybe in a way arising from or in relation to your own scholarly practice um, related to conceiving your scholarship in your voice before the page, um, that you have been paying attention to other kinds of voices now in, in audiobooks. Can you say a little bit about, about that and what it is that you're finding? Your, what, I don't know, maybe you know why, or just you're noticing that you are turning to audiobooks and listening practices right now. Yeah, I, I think, I don't know why, mm -hmm. um, but um, it's something that I have, I, I um, always have loved, you know, somebody reading out loud to me, whether it's a person who's there or... Um, on a cassette tape or at the radio and then you know cds and mm -hmm. uh, mp3 files yeah. or on the web first before like um podcasts so um so all, that's always been very present for me i used to as a child i used to have an um, old car stereo uh, i don't know um in my room mm -hmm. and then we just play over and over again the same i had only one cassette tape <laughs> with fairy tales yeah. <laughs> and I would hear it over and over again wow. um, and I would listen to Norwegian I grew up in Norway Norwegian uh -huh. um, radio plays for children and it's just my you know my most fond memories and I think memories and I think it's kind of like it's that story makes a space mm -hmm. that I can sit inside mm -hmm. and I have always continued that practice but I think just now it's been even more important to me as felt like a refuge um, in, you know, this kind of oversaturation of news mm -hmm. and voices and polemics. And um, mm -hmm. it's, I think I've just been very, felt very um, different when I just have been sitting down or going for a walk. We can go for walks here mm -hmm. um, and listening to this one author and performer really voice mm -hmm. and staying with them um and then also again it's something i don't know why but when i see things on the page i always want to change it i have such a different relationship to writing when it's on a page mm -hmm. it felt feels so much more fraught yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, about like right and wrong and back and forth and skipping and so i i just feel i'm in this place with that author and performer's voice when i hear the book read out loud mm -hmm. to me um so that's been really the most yeah. nourishing thing in this period of time yeah. even though again it's i haven't listened to anything more or less i think but it's been the thing that's been the most important mm -hmm. to me now mm -hmm. and there are people like who play with play with words and make worlds through words which authors <laughs> i think all authors mm -hmm. do people who think about big questions of life um, and uh, and people have very distinct kind of writerly voices but it's a whole big big mix mm -hmm. but I've just been really really um, found a lot of peace mm -hmm. and um, comfort in that amazing practice yeah yeah I wanted to tell you um, that um, I loved hearing your stories about listening to um, you know, you said Norway has a tradition of radio theater specifically for children, just, just like Germany and some other places. And um, I didn't grow up with that, but I will say that one of my earliest memories, I think it is my earliest memory, is sitting on the floor next to the speaker of my parents' 
sound system. You know, they had like a, uh, a, pl- a little cupboard where all the records were kept. And on either side of that, this was the early 80s, there were these speakers that um, sat on the floor and were very tall. And, you know, as a child, I, I could sit next to, and I think the speaker was bigger than I was. So there was kind of a sense of, <laughs> a sense of like safety being next to it, you know, kind of like it was, it was a, something you could lean into. And I remember putting my ear really close to the speaker and, and trying to catch all the sounds, all the notes that were coming in. Like, it's just a very vivid memory of, of wanting to get as mm. close as possible to that speaker. Mm. So I think those early practices of listening have an impact on us even now. Oh, I can see you. Like, I, <laughs> I would love to, you know, this should be a, an artist should render, a, you know, an image of you like that just from their fantasy. It's that so sounds funny. amazing. Like you wanted to be inside. Yeah, I wanted to get as close as possible. Inside the sound, inside the music. Yeah, yeah you wanted to eat yeah, it, right? Yeah. You wanted to taste exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> you wanted it for it to ingest <laughs> exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> I, I must have been about three or, or something like that. Yeah, so, and I think... Um, I just, I want to make sure to come back to something. And I think part of what I hope I can do, I know everyone is so busy. I'm hearing, especially from parents, that it's it's so hard to find the time. You know, we have so many more jobs than you expected to (laughs) in the spring. And so it's hard to find the time to just process. And so... Um, I'm glad that kind of talking in our prep call and today is is useful for you. There was something you said that really struck me when we spoke last week, which is about that some of your past work has been about the fact that there is no world before we create it. And if we expect black people's voices to sound a certain way, we will hear them that way. And so there, there you know, there, there's a way that it's we we impose our our desires or our expectations on the world and then the world seems to manifest that and and that right now with all of these voices of the leaders you know people in power and all the different places and the news voices the you said the world is created for us in such a strong way and that turning to to these practices of listening to the audiobooks may also be a way of of creating other kinds of other kinds of worlds um in, in opposition to or, or in defiance to or in drowning out of but or in response to or some way engaged in a relation to um, those other voices. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in many ways, we we can be quite different. Like somebody, for instance, I've, <laughs> I, I just return to over and over again is Leo Tolstoy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, clearly somebody grew up in a very different time and had a very different life than me. But at the same time, I think we're very, very similar. Hmm. Um, you know, in the big scheme yeah, of things. Yeah. <laughs> and then another very important voice um, to me has been Kiesa Lehman, who is, uh, you know, again, grew up in a very different mm-hmm. um, country than I did, or I grew up in a very country, different country than he mm-hmm. did. Um, again, I, you know, we have so many things in common. Um, I've been very interested in Otessa Mosfeg, who also has a completely different writerly voice mm-hmm. and um, different experience, but there's so many commonalities. So I think it's just this, and then just to mention somebody who's very close to me in some ways in terms of perspective and experience and shared um, cultural references, Karl Uwe Knausgård, who's a Norwegian writer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what's very, to me, what's interesting with these voices is the cross between, to see the, I guess, the crossfade of where mm-hmm. we, where I feel like 
I am exactly like Leo Tolstoy, mm-hmm. and I, here's where I'm not at all, or like he's writerly, who you know his books, um, and here's where I'm not. So so it gives me, it allows me to see myself yeah. too in a different kind of yeah. way. So same with all these authors, it just allows one a little bit more space. It's an area yeah. of its own kind of <laughs> circular yeah. thoughts. I think it's one of the effects, and also it's really lovely to be able to try on other people's voices. <laughs> kind of tired of my own thoughts. <laughs> Very tired, in fact, of my own oh, thoughts. Yeah. So, um, so the, I think that's one of the kind of, I guess, therapeutic or even just like um, entertaining or just uh, interest effects, like um, to see these overlaps and uh, where the overlaps are and uh-huh. where they do not exist I think we've kind of come to the end of my questions but I, I just want to mention that what I am so grateful for you speaking about is practices practices of scholarship practices of attention practices of listening practices of, of making voice um, and I think and there's just something about how you framed it that I think um, is really is really helpful. I think we are all looking for practical <laughs> strategies for how do I live right now in this moment. Uh, it doesn't feel like the moment before, and my strategies that I used before may not work now. And um, so I just thank you for sharing with us um, some of your own practices, and I think that it may um, encourage and. Um, you know, inspire and incite other people who may be listening. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, maybe I can just tell you sure. very quickly that um, the word practice is really poignant to me. Um, mm-hmm. And um, one of the things I have been working on for some time now, and it's going to be officially, officially announced maybe next month is that I have the opportunity to start uh, at UCLA where I work practice-based, I call it a practice-based experimental epistemology research wow. lab. So that would be peer <laughs> go, go. lab, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as an acronym. And um, and um, it's going to be all the work we will do will be based in indigenous and local grassroots practices mm-hmm. and knowledges. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, at this time we have monocultures that is destroying our earth and mm-hmm potentially possibly also part of why we have this uh, pandemic mm-hmm. um and i think also academia is a monoculture mm-hmm. we i mean i have to look at myself why did i fly to hong kong for two days you know to give two talks mm-hmm. and back here mm-hmm. what the emission carbon emission is horrendous and i didn't even think about mm-hmm. it <laughs> why do I fly every week somewhere to give a talk? It's, I have to really, really look at myself. Um, and uh, so there is a monoculture, I think, in academia. Mm-hmm. And um, what I'm, I want to be committed to is to make, um, and this goes back to the talk that you heard, actually, mm-hmm. um, um, kind of research practice that is um, grounded in the earth that we walk on mm-hmm. and the buildings are built mm-hmm. on. So here, for example, at UCLA, we are on the territory of the traditional land of the Gabrielino and Tongva people. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? Mm-hmm. How can our work reflect that and take in, that into account and be in dialogue with that and actually be affected by that? And maybe we'll have to do things that we wouldn't have if we 
didn't take that into account. Um, What does it mean that there are all these different practices in LA? Mm -hmm. Um, There are more than 100 languages spoken here. Mm -hmm. Um, Why doesn't our research at UCLA, just to take this as one environment, why doesn't our research fully show that? Mm A few people are, you know, um, do work specifically on those issues. But I think our our research need to be, you know, locally sourced mm-hmm. and come from the concretely from this earth and the practices of the people living here mm-hmm. and who have lived here for a very, very, very long time, long before we were here. Wow, this is amazing! I'm so excited. I I hope it's okay if this will probably go up on Thursday. I hope it's okay if we. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. But I look forward to the formal announcement and to hearing more about this. It sounds fantastic and and needed and under discussed. And so um, that's really exciting to hear about. Yes, I'm happy about that. And cool. Yeah, all we can do, I guess, is <laughs> um, take a deep yeah. breath and and, uh, and do work that at least we, we, we can't always ensure it, but we have the intention to matter. Mm-hmm. And it's for somebody specifically. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Not just for a CV. <laughs> Beautiful. Yes. Thank you so much for making the time to do this. I know that you're very busy right now and um, with all your commitments, there's so many calls for your attention and it is just such a pleasure to be able to speak with you and, and hear your thoughts in this moment. So thank you. Oh, Monsi, you are, um, I don't know how, how to say it, you're an example of somebody who who brings other voices forward and you are the best listener and that's an understatement of course and um i feel so lucky to have gotten to know you oh thank you i can't know i'm gonna get emotional so let's wrap this up (laughs) but thank you that means a lot and um i think that's it i think we're done thank you thank you so much if you open your ears correctly if you listen very well you will hear not only the it's such a pleasure to welcome Jeremy Ryan Mossman, who is joining me vocally as our guest vocal instructor for this episode. Jeremy is assistant professor of music theater at Carthage College and holds a Bachelor of Music in Musical Theater Performance from the University of Miami and a Master of Music in Vocal Pedagogy with a focus in musical theater voice from Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan. Jeremy is an Estill Master Teacher, 200 hours certified yoga teacher, and is in the process of becoming a Guild Certified Feldenkrais Practitioner. Jeremy has previously taught at Western Michigan University, Oakland University, Wayne State University in Detroit, and St. Clair College in Windsor, Ontario. Jeremy has been a teacher, clinician, or presenter at several conferences and symposia, including the Estill World Voice Symposium in 2019 in London, uh, a series of Estill Level 1 and 2 trainings, the Musical Theater Educators Alliance, the Voice Foundation, Michigan School Vocal Music Association, and various cities in China. Jeremy's work has been published in the Vocal Athlete Workbook and the Singing Teacher's Cookbook. Jeremy has directed or music directed dozens of shows, performed in national tours, regional theaters, and on cruise ships, and also developed and performed a solo song cycle of the music and lyrics of John Vicino called This Is How I Feel, This Is What I Think, which won the Julie Wilson Cabaret Award at the Sarasolo Festival in Sarasota, Florida. Welcome, Jeremy. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. 
Great. So before we jump in, I would love if you could just tell us a little bit about some of the wonderful methods that you um, are trained in and teach in, just because I think not all of our listeners will be aware. So maybe you could say a bit about Estel. Sure. Joe Estel was a voice teacher and had a high-level clientele, um, including Marnie Nixon, who was a very famous voice. She was the voice Mm -hmm. of uh, Natalie Wood in West Side Story and Audrey Hepburn in My Fair Lady. And uh, when she was, uh, you know, in her 60s, I believe, she went back to school because she wanted to understand why what she was doing was working. And she, uh she pioneered understanding the behaviors of the various muscles and cartilages inside of the larynx, which is um, that walnut in your throat or your Adam's apple, if you've got mm-hmm. one large enough to see in the mirror. Uh, and also the behaviors of the vocal tract, meaning the spaces in your throat and your mouth and possibly um, access into your nose. And she figured out how these different muscular actions in the vocal in the vocal tract and the larynx coordinated to create different voice qualities. So one of the sort of main thoughts that she had was, do I sound like an opera singer because of my DNA or because of the way that I learned to use my voice? And while she was testing and bringing her students into um, clinics to um, examine the behaviors inside of their voice, their vocal apparatus, she um, noticed that there were patterns. And so she went to figure out the patterns and understand the recipes for how we could sound like an opera singer or how we could train ourselves to sound like a Broadway belter or a country singer or a Mm -hmm. pop singer songwriter or really empowering somebody to recognize that they can make the choices with their voice that they want to make. They're not bound by the choices that they seem to already be making. Amazing. Thank you for explaining that. I really love Estel voice training as a method. It's one that I've studied a bit, which is how I met you mm-hmm. actually in, in some of my coursework for that. And I just, I, I want to just mention also that part of what I love about it, as you've explained, is that there isn't a hierarchy. You know, a lot of methods will say this kind of singing is better mm-hmm. than that kind. And this, and, and Estel really allows for a kind of equality among many different ways of singing. Um, and, and I think that's that's very beautiful and, and one of the things I love. Yeah, yeah, I, I, think, I think it's quite wonderful and quite empowering because I think um, students, young students in particular, um, maybe, maybe that's not true. Maybe everybody has a belief about their voice in some way that I have a break mm-hmm. here or that I'm a soprano so I don't belt or they define mm-hmm. themselves in some way that might not be true and maybe they're putting limitations on themselves and yeah. so it's a way that we can sort of break down those walls and get and move past the taboos. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely fantastic. You know, I didn't um, mention this when we were prepping for this conversation, but I wonder if you could say a little bit about the program that I know you're teaching in. It's a new program at Carthage yeah. College um, because I think it's so exciting to have a program that trains voice teachers mm-hmm. for musical theater, mm-hmm. if, if I'm getting that correct. That is correct. So, yeah, and I was fortunate to be up there at Carthage, um, was it just this past fall? Oh my gosh, it seems like a lifetime ago. <laughs> and it seemed like such an exciting program. So could you just say a little bit about that? Yeah, we have a brand new master's program. We are just tying up our first year. It's a 10-month master's, so uh, there's, there's the... Um, regular school year and then moving in through the first summer term, I believe, to work on capstone mm-hmm. projects and um, theses. And uh, and we have a beautiful cohort that's also different, uh, all looking for different things from this education. So it really mm-hmm. um, jives with the liberal arts and Carthage is a liberal arts institution. 
And so it's, yeah. it's, quite, it's quite a beautiful program. And in it, I get to teach a course that is the integration of voice and movement. So we get to do some really interesting non-linear things. I like to call each class an indirect voice lesson experiment. And in, oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> in any class, we sing to get a sense of our voice, and then we don't sing again until the end of class. We only move our, our body in specific ways or maybe open-ended ways. And then at the end of class, we come back and find out how examining oh, our movements wow. and how moving in such a way affected our voice, which really is is pulling Brilliant. from my somatic passion, my passion for, yep. for movement arts with yoga. And I'm about to start my 300 hour training next month. And also, like you were saying, I'm in process okay. with Feldenkrais, which is just the real deal for experiential learning. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. I love it. I love that idea of vocalizing only at the beginning and then rearranging the physicality and then mm-hmm. seeing where the voice or listening, I guess, to where the voice is. Both. I love it. Okay. Well, I don't want to take up all the time. Mm-hmm. We could talk about this all day. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you one other thing before we get to the exercise, sure. because you mentioned, I know you, like uh, Julie Fo, who I spoke with last week, um, have done a lot of uh, coaching through video conference already. So you were prepared more than many of us to, to make this transition that so many professors have had to make. I know it's not ideal, it still poses challenges, but you said something that I thought was really, really interesting about how you listen to how students are performing when you're teaching over Zoom. Mm-hmm. And uh, the way the sound may go in a certain way that tells you something about what the singers are doing. Yeah. Could I ask you to just share that? Sure, yeah. Um, I noticed years ago that when a student would get more resonance, it would sound worse on my end. And, and mm-hmm. I made the correlation, and, and this, is not, this is not my area of scholarship, so I can't talk too in depth about why that is, but my, I, my theory is that these simple microphones and speakers are compressing the sound and not able to handle yeah. the highest frequencies of the singing voice, yeah. which are like in the very highest octaves of the piano. So it's yeah. not what we perceive, but the, the microphones are picking it up and going, oh God, that is a lot to handle and a lot to transmit. Yeah. And so sometimes a student will be singing and it'll suddenly get garbled over here or sometimes disappear altogether. And, mm. and for me, it's become a reference for when they're actually uh, increasing resonant energy, acoustic energy in their sound, thereby yeah. becoming more resonant. And so yeah. uh, one of the disadvantages, which I've turned into an advantage, is that it makes the student more accountable. And so I have to ask mm-hmm. them, I tell them, over here, it got kind of weird. What did you experience? And almost always yeah. they'll be like, oh yeah, it was like, it got so easy. Or it was like, I found this uh-huh. place. And so they'll start reporting the things that I can't say to them. I can't say, I heard this. Wow. I can tell them my experience of the microphone did something funny there. Is it because yeah. of something that happened for you? And, and almost always uh, it, it, it's a positive thing. So, you know, That's like amazing. this is a constraint, but how do we learn to work with constraints? You know, yeah. we become yeah. stronger for them. We co- we become better for them. We adapt and we grow with them. Yeah. Beautiful. This is so <laughs> inspiring. Thank you, Jeremy. 
Um, I I want to go. To, I'm just gonna. I'm gonna kind of sit with that for a while because it's really thought provoking. Just that the thing that seems to be a problem can actually be the moment of discovery or mm-hmm. breakthrough or greater self awareness for the singer, mm-hmm. even though it seems like a problem mm-hmm. for the for the channel, <laughs> right. the zoom right. zoomness. Cool. So um, let's. I'm gonna I'm gonna percolate with that thought in the coming in the coming week. But I want to go ahead and and uh, invite you to share your exercise, which I know is sure. kind of a multi part thing. It okay. actually stems from uh, a vocal function exercise by Joseph Stemple, S T E M P L E, and mm-hmm. these these exercises, um, to my knowledge, are one of a kind. They're very simple, but they're one of a kind, and they're used in voice therapy. And so these exercises really help um, coordinate the breath, the vibration, and the resonation. One of them mm-hmm. uh, that I like to build on um, is very simple. Uh, it's in we would consider it a semi-occluded vocal tract exercise, which just means part of my mouth is closed or part of the system is closed. Mm -hmm. So uh, often in voice lessons, we'll start with a lip trill or a hum. Mm -hmm. And that's, those are semi-occluded vocal tract exercises um, Mm -hmm. because the lips are partially closed, which helps build pressure into the mouth, which helps the vocal folds work better, which helps the breath work better. So Mm -hmm. it's sort of one-stop shopping. (laughs) <laughs> great yeah currently there's a lot of there's a lot of um uh talk about using straws like drinking straws yeah. as semi-occluded vocal tract exercise options uh-huh. uh, so this is in that same category of um how it helps vocal function and why mm-hmm. and there are there are two options for words that you can use one which is the one that joseph stemple recommends is noll n-o-l-l and no, if you okay. say it with your lips moving very close together, you'll get vibration between your lips. No. Mm-hmm. No. No. Okay. No. Yeah. And the vibration on the lips is key here. And what you want to start to do is once you figure out how to coordinate that word and the lips to vibrate, start mm-hmm. to play around with your range. Can you carry that vibration? throughout your range. So what you're looking for is a consistent siren, meaning a pitch glide from low to high and back down, mm-hmm. maintaining okay. the vibration. Something okay. like no. Ah, it's hard it's hard for me to keep the vibration at the top. Mm. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a something that that you can keep trial and erroring and maybe yeah. figure out maybe it was like too much air. Um, maybe it was not enough air, you know, it could be a yeah, variety yeah. of things, but, but knowing that you're looking for the consistency on your okay. lips can mm-hmm. mean anybody can figure this out because you know what sure. you're trying to figure out. What do I have to do to keep my lips yeah. buzzing? Um, Perfect. And you said there was another word, just to right. make sure you get to mention Yes, it. thank you. Uh, the other word is whoop, like whoopsie daisy, which whoop. starts with the vibration on the lips kind of automatically. So uh-huh. you could do whoop. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Or put awesome. them together and, all day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You could put, you could play <laughs> with them, and that's that's the nature of learning, you know. Like just explore both these options and see how they're different, and and yeah. you'll come up with something new on your own, and your creativity will start uh-huh. to glom on. And so, those are Joseph Stemple's ideas, um, and uh, I like to take them a little bit further. Yeah. And so, because 
it's a semi-occluded vocal tract exercise. What often is a part of that, what's often embedded into that is that the soft palate goes high, blocking off any entrance to the nose. Let me explain what that means. Mm -hmm. Your soft palate mm -hmm. is this little flap that's at the roof of your mouth and the back of your mouth, which you can actually mm -hmm. feel if you take the tip of your tongue behind your, your top teeth and draw a line to the back of your mouth, you'll feel you pass mm -hmm. through the dome of the hard palate and then there will be sort of a threshold where the hard palate becomes soft and gooey and that's mm -hmm. your soft palate. In cartoons, you'll see that little dangly guy in the back of the mouth, which is the <laughs> uvula that hangs off yeah. of the soft palate. So it's yeah. that thing back there. Mm -hmm. And so when it, when it raises into a higher position, it blocks off the nose and the nose can be very valuable for resonance. So mm -hmm. it's tricky to coordinate this exercise, which by nature is meaning to block off the nose with the mm -hmm. nose. But I find that if yeah. you plug your nose, you can actually find access to it. You'll also hear the sound change and feel vibration under your fingertips, which is how you'll know uh -huh. that it is going through your nose as well as the vibration of your lips. Okay, so you kind of pinch your nose mm -hmm. to try this, mm -hmm. to plug your nose. Okay. That's right. Cool. So, I would, so here's one, here's an example without the nose in it. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of mm -hmm. what that sounds like in my voice. Mm -hmm. And then if I plugged mm -hmm. my nose and allowed it to go through my nose as well. Yeah. And it's different and it's less familiar for me. And so I have to work on that one because you heard there was a bigger break there. And part of the purpose of this is to- I thought that was just Zoom. <laughs> it was Zoom. It was absolutely Zoom. <laughs> I thought it was a Zoom glitch. That's right. Yeah. It was a Zoom glitch. But should it have been a little right, bit of correct. a break, um, it just shows me what I need to work on. Yeah. So that's one option for adding a fuller harmonic spectrum, more brights into the sound. Mm -hmm. What I want to do is maintain the sense of vibration on my lips, like I'm saying mm -hmm. whoop or nool. Mm -hmm and then see how, how close I can get to a sense of the words I'm trying to say without mm -hmm. losing the vibration in the lips. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I, I always use the song, um, All the Things You Are, just to play with. I just love that phrase. Beautiful, uh, Jerome Kern. Yes. yes. Uh, and so the words are, you are the promised kiss of springtime that makes the lonely mm -hmm. winter seem long. Can I mm -hmm. orchestrate my articulators in such a way that that is maybe semi-intelligible? It might yeah, not sound yeah. totally intelligible, but you can get surprisingly close. So mm -hmm. here's my version of that through this constraint with the vibration on my lips. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a little silly, but you know, we learn when we're having fun, so why not be silly? Of course. And so yeah. once I figure out how I can get a sense of the words and I can keep aiming for more and more accuracy and probably get more yeah. accurate, I could I could yeah. add the melody. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And it's it's very much like a pat your head, rub your stomach, pat your head, rub your stomach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what I love about how you're explaining this is that you're explaining it in terms of what to feel for, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. That we are feeling for the buzzing in the lips mm-hmm. or, or the vibration in the lips. Um, we can very concretely pinch our nose mm-hmm. and feel that and and then attend to how that's changing our sound. Yeah. And we can very clearly try to keep our lips in the spoot and uh, and make words That's right. and see what happens. That's right. I mean, my, philosophically, yeah. this is this is really where I live. Is that um, we teach ourselves to do a whole lot of stuff without a teacher. Um, things like walking and mm-hmm. talking. So why can't mm-hmm. we teach ourselves how to sing? And one of the reasons why we can't is we don't know what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. if someone was just to say this is something to look for, then you can take it into your own hands. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it, it can be yeah, empowering. Yeah, yeah. And by look for, you mean listen for or feel for. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. This is great. It feels a little bit like, so this semi-occluded vocal tract, right? Where mm-hmm. things are partially closed. Mm-hmm. It feels kind of like our lives right now. Right. <laughs> like the doors are, our front doors are mostly closed except for when we need to step out to take a walk or run to the grocery store or get the mail or whatever it is so we're living these semi-occluded lives Mm -hmm. but what that means though when the when the lips are kind of closing off some of the access to what we think of as where the sound comes from then it means that we can really be attentive to how our voice is alive in the vocal tract in the house inside um, and and not have to worry so much about what we think is happening outside or or how big we're smiling or biting that apple as the mm-hmm. belter or whatever it is that we think we're supposed to be doing that sort of shows the world that we are out in the world. We're able to kind of live inside the space, inside the mouth a little more. I'm not sure I explained that very well, but that was what it made me think of when you were when you were teaching it. I, th- I think that's I think that's um, totally profound. Um, a great analogy for what also happens with the voice. Um, yeah. we're, we're taught in, in grade school, you know, to use our lips to produce our vowels. A, yeah. E, like big smile for E, big jaw drop for ah, oh, ooh. Yeah. And, and it doesn't really help us learn what else we could do. There are so many mm-hmm. ways our articulators can interact, articulators mm-hmm. being tongue, lips, jaw, essentially, soft palate. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so many ways that they could potentially interact. So to only have one option could be very limiting for your artistry. And so mm-hmm. it really does help you get to know the house inside. And just like we're mm-hmm. all experiencing right now, we um, <laughs> are going through house improvements because we're in our house so much more. Clean those closets. Exactly. Yes. So why don't we get to know these parts of our mouth and throat and nose that we can't see, that we don't sense as well. We haven't spent a lot of time in the back of our mouth, certainly not Mm -hmm. as much as we have in the front of our mouth. It's always Mm -hmm. interesting to me that I hear things like don't sing in your throat, which I recognize is really a perceptually based comment. It's about Mm -hmm. something that somebody hears and says that sounds like the throat or the back of the throat. However, if we're talking real talk, that's mm-hmm. like saying, don't use anything in the middle of the trumpet, just the mouthpiece and the bell. <laughs> but how do you avoid it? The air has to pass through yeah. it and my keys are there. So yeah, right. how, do, how do I avoid using my throat and why would Correct. I want to? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a perception right. on the part of the listener. Yeah, but if we spend a little more time in our in our houses, as we are, mm-hmm. and as we have the opportunity to do, you know, in our in our vocal houses, then we can um, figure out what we want to do. That's right, and how we want to live, and what we yeah. can do, and what we can do. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you so much, Jeremy. This was fantastic. My pleasure. Thank you for bringing me on. That's it. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll listen in next week for episode four, where I plan to host as my guest Shana Redmond, professor of musicology and African-American studies at the University of California, Los Angeles, and author of the new book, Everything Man, The Form and Function of Paul Robeson. Until then. <laughs>